Hi, Ollie. Thank you very much for joining me today. Oliver Lowry is the co-founder of Ackroyd Lowry, along with John Ackroyd, and you're an architect. That's correct. Yep. Um, we've been running our business for about three years now. Um, Ackroyd Lowry uh, was sort of quite known for taking rundown buildings and actually rundown areas and creating um, inspiring places to live and work. Um, we are we're quite well known for our VR pro for our design process as well. We got an award for it last year actually, um, using virtual reality uh, so that our clients can fully understand the buildings that we're designing for them before we start building them. Um, we're currently working on uh, master plans for over a billion pounds worth of new uh, workspace and housing, and our kind of end goal is that we want to be on the cutting edge of designing the cities of the future. Well, that's the whole podcast wrapped up. <laughs> You've told us everything. Thank you very much, Ollie. Now, look, look, we're going to touch on a number of those different things because obviously you're working on a huge amount of uh, regen there and also the VR is fascinating. So let's just go right back to the very beginning here. And what made you go into architecture? Um, well, I wanted to be an artist, but I realised that um, <laughs> there was nothing, there was no real career prospect in that. So this is just the second best. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, architecture. But do you still dabble in your art? I do. Um, yeah, me and my friends have got a terrible um, painting collective called Kivu. Kivu is a, a made up artist that we all, so every time we do a painting, we all go on holiday together, we bring canvases and paints and we're all absolutely terrible. Um, but it doesn't stop us from enjoying it. And then we sign it all Kivu. And occasionally we have um, exhibitions of Kivu's really? work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'd love to see that. Oh, wow. <laughs> you wouldn't. They're terrible. Oh, we're just... <laughs> where we are right now is um, on Hackney Road. And we've had to just demolish the famous rabbit by ROA. And oh, so yeah. we're just talking about trying to get ROA back to... Or Roa, however he says his name, to, to redo the rabbit in the foyer of this. So maybe we'll need you and your... Uh, your artist. Kimu, yeah, yeah. would love Kimu. to be commissioned for a larger <laughs> exactly. piece. Exactly, that would be amazing. And look, Ollie and I met each other on a boat in Cannes during MIPAM, and that's really, we'd heard of each other and we'd had some email exchanges, but yeah, it was the last day of MIPAM and we'd all had enough, hadn't we? <laughs> so, I, I, was, I was just getting my second or maybe third wind at yeah, the time. That's right. So we spent the afternoon drinking a lot of rosé and eating crisps as one does on a yacht in Cannes. And then we decided to do a Facebook Live. Yeah, that was after the first bottle of rosé, which I sort of regret. Anybody that watched the video was like, what happened? Why were you so strange? I was like, I was drunk. And they were like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> no, you did really sense. well. It was your first Facebook Live, wasn't it? <laughs> Pretty much. I'd done yeah. one the day before with Brendan. Oh, yes, yes, as well. that's right. Yeah, um, but Brendan I was sober Quinn. for that, so it was a bit easier. Yeah. And oh, it wasn't easier drunk? <laughs> it was easier, but I thought that the bit where our sign blew over on top of us was the, was the yeah, highlight was of our interview. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a really nice way of meeting Ollie and getting to know him. And also his, uh, his, one of his business partners, Katie, who does the interior design, who, uh, yeah, we were quite taken by her. She's young, isn't she? She's 26 and one of the most talented people I've ever met. So, yeah, uh, she's amazing. Very entrepreneurial as well. So she she's is. been a real asset to our business. Yeah, we've got a massive girl crush on Katie. She's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so I know, I've just putting it out there. <laughs> exactly, I'm sure she is. Oh, and we saw her at the airport coming back from Mitham too. So she was, oh no, I thought I got rid of these girls. <laughs> and here they are. So no, Katie's an incredibly talented interior designer. And that's, again, part of the Ackroyd Lowry service is, is the interior design and how you create these amazing spaces. It is. It works very well for us having interiors in-house. One, um, 
we can sort of open doors to her that she wouldn't be able to open, but she can equally get us in with um, sort of larger clients. So there's a there's a sort of interiors package that comes first, and then we're able to offer um, kind of more architectural stuff as well. So, for example, we're doing some work with um, uh, Inspired Assets, Martin Skinner. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're doing some of their communal areas where Katie's been working on it, but actually there's a bit of the kind of architecture starting to... to to work its way in and and that's really exciting for us so uh, it works really well with the virtual reality as well yeah tell us about the virtual reality and and obviously it's a it's quite a new technology so tell us about what made you adopt that technology and uh what you do for your clients so i'd like to say that it was because and this is really everything we try and do at Quid larry is to is to solve problems so the problem that me and John identified was that p- buildings were getting built that weren't fully signed off. We did a lot of um, work at our old practice where we met, um, going into buildings and, and finding out the elements that didn't work. And often this was down to not very good briefing and multi-headed clients not fully engaging with two-dimensional information like plans. Most people can't read plans. So architects rely on them all the time and we were like, well, what can we do that's better? How can we get this sign-off process to be more effective? Um, so that was a thought in our head. And after a year of, of not really solving that problem, we decided to have this massive party um, and we invited about 150 people, none of which were even in the industry. We didn't even know anyone in the industry. We just thought, well, let's have a big party and see what happens. <laughs> it seems to be a so, theme with you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we do do good events. Um, so we rented a warehouse and we had 3D printers and we had um, this, uh, you know, we, we had some images of some of our projects, but we hadn't actually finished any buildings after a year. So we're like, oh shit, what are we going to show? Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, it's podcast. Yeah, it's Um, my podcast. (laughs) I make the rules. (laughs) Uh, So we um, we were like, okay, well, let's. What can we do? We hacked together. We got. We went and bought a second-hand Oculus Rift virtual reality headset. We got an Xbox controller and we got a big desktop computer and we rigged it up so that our clients could, or sorry, our guests could walk through one of our buildings like they were in a computer game, and. We had this big queue, so the people were doing the 3D printing and stuff, that was quite exciting, but we had this massive queue for people to walk through our building as, as, as though they were in Doom or, you know, Tomb Raider or whatever. Um, and we were like, oh, maybe we're onto something. And then one of our clients, who's actually, the building that we were showing was this photographic studio, and he'd been thinking about this project for about four years, and we still hadn't even started on site at the time. And he, he went into it and he came out and he had tears in his eyes and he was like, guys, I've finally seen it. You know, I can, I can fully understand. And I've got so many changes I want to make now that I've seen it. And we were like, right, we're definitely onto something. So we started using it on more and more of our projects. And now we insist on a virtual reality sign off um, because we know that when our clients see it firsthand, they will make changes. And we don't want that to happen when we're on site because that's expensive and it costs us money. So we offer it as a free service to all of our clients basically to save us money down the line because we don't once we've got this buy-in from people we don't ever redesign it after that yeah and that's that's an interesting uh concept and for me i thought the vr would be quite expensive and almost prohibitive but you're saying that you actually save money by having this as part of the sign-off and then you don't have to make changes in the future yeah exactly so we save money for the client because they're not going to try and change things on site and builders charge a lot for changing stuff on site. And it saves us money because it makes our design process um, not shorter. I think there's more goes into it at the start. But once we reach a firm sign off, then that's it. And we just have to build the thing that's been agreed rather than continuing to iterate throughout the, the later stages of the project, which is what typically happens. 
Yeah, and it definitely happens on ours, and uh, I, <laughs> I understand the the frustrations for the for the architect and for the the contractor who is having to make these changes when we come on site and say, actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we can get half a square half a square foot <laughs> additional space if we just move this, and they're going, oh no, please don't do yeah, that to us. Yeah. But had we have walked through the space and physically felt the space and seen it, then perhaps we could have seen some of those changes prior to, to the actual yeah, starting on site. exactly, and I think it even helps with um, starting to think really early about the interiors because often there is a bit of a clash between, you know, you kind of want to see the space first before you start thinking about what tiles, what sofas, what, it, but it allows you to make those decisions earlier and then kind of if you want to have a massive, you know, like light fitting or piece of furniture and, and it's going to dominate the space, you can kind of model that and go, actually, do you know what, that doesn't work at all. And, and it makes you rethink about, you know, how you want that entire space to work. That's right. You could really have options of these statement staircases yep. in a penthouse. I'm just thinking about penthouse apartments in City Road and, and trying to decide on the uh, style of that that stairway and you could have a couple of different options in there couldn't you and the client yeah. can decide which one they like so we usually model in, in our, our first meeting with our client we just listen and we try and understand as much of the brief as possible in the second meeting we will usually have three or four different options side by side modeled in 3d and they can just walk from one to the next to the next to the next and usually that by the third one they're like i do you know i really don't like this i really don't like this but i do like this and this and this and then we can actually live make the fourth one listening to all of their comments. And, and so by the end of that meeting, that's usually where we've got a pretty good steer of where we think the project's going to end up. And do you have someone in-house that does all this VR? Then it sounds like if you're modifying it during the meeting that you've got this technology down yourself. Yes. Having hacked together the process, we're now quite good at it. But yeah, we do it all in-house. That's fantastic. That's, that is really remarkable. And I'm not sure that there are any other architectural practices doing that. I think there are. I think the bigger boys tend to do it but I don't think that they've embedded it quite so much in the process like we really we've we've based our process around it and and have key sign-offs at different stages um depending on what level of detail we're looking at and I think that's the thing that's unique is that that it's really is it lives as part of our design process and what who are your typical clients what sort of size um so on the residential development size side uh we typically do nine to fifty unit schemes um, we do quite a lot of mixed use, um, so, uh, but again, similar numbers on the resi and then usually some commercial elements as well. Um, and we also do quite a lot of commercial asset enhancements. So we work with companies like DTZ Investors um, where they've got a portfolio of assets and we'll kind of come in and look at opportunities for them to either reconfigure, fit out and improve or extend. And that all fits into this £1 billion pounds worth of uh, property that you're currently working on well the, the master planning uh, yeah so i think those the gdvs on on the sort of projects where uh on the kind of commercial and resi combine up to a few hundred million but we're also looking at this master plan um for which we're not allowed to talk too much about but it's um for an entire new quarter and that's gonna the gdv on that alone uh, on that one master plan is a billion um pounds oh, incredible uh, is that in around whole, london or yeah outside yeah, yeah. Of london? it's in it's in an east london borough and it's basically a whole new quarter it's very exciting we've got buy-in from the local authority and um got most of the site kind of optioned up so it's um it's really exciting it's gonna that be a whole a new dream a whole new kind of town basically. yeah that's a dream project isn't it for an architect absolutely of that. absolutely yeah and how did you and john meet 
Um, so we because you are just to backtrack oh, a little bit here, just to add. You, it's as if you two are brothers. You have that sort of brotherly relationship. You you really do get along well, don't you? We do, we do. We spend our weekends together sometimes. We're like, oh, God, why am I still hanging around with you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, in fact, we went skiing recently after Miffin and um, we had to share a bed. And we sent a photo of me and him lying on the pillow. I think I sent it to you, you didn't did, I? Yeah. And I, I sent that same to my fiance, and she was like, oh, at last, yeah. you've decided to consummate it, have you? <laughs> Yeah, there's a bit of tension there, isn't <laughs> yeah, yeah. there? <laughs> no. Not anymore. Not anymore. It's all out. <laughs> now we can't look at each other in the eye. Yeah, that's no. right. Um, yeah, so we, we work together at Archetype, um, who are a wicked company, very eco, lots of education projects. Um, and we were never, we were like the two naughty boys who were never allowed to sit together at Oh, at I can't school. imagine that. <laughs> and so we were always separated, never worked on the same projects, I think, because they knew that we'd probably get along. And eventually we did get along. And so we decided to set up on our own. And yeah, we've grown it very quickly. So three years later, we've got 12 staff, we've got our own office, we've got an office dog. Um, <laughs> it's all, yeah, it's, it's good. It's and good. you're based in Hackney. We're based in Hackney. Yeah, we love My it. My favourite borough. I live here too. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, you live here as well? Yeah, I live in Clapton. Do you? Um, I didn't realise that. Okay, we're neighbours. Excellent. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you've got lovely offices. I've not been there, but Marina's been over and uh, I'm waiting for an invite on a Friday afternoon because I heard yeah. that um, it gets a bit raucous over there. No, <laughs> never, never. And another a new area that you're moving into more recently is the property sourcing or site sourcing as well. Yes, that's um, because we what we identified is that there's an imbalance um, in London between vast amounts of money and availability of things to buy. Um, and it's just something that we're seeing over and over again. You know, the amount of... We put quite a lot of content out there, so we've written, written a white paper recently on um, how off-site construction is going to um, change the, the property industry. And we get loads of inquiries from people going, oh, I've got all this money I need to spend. I really want to spend it on... I love off-site. I want to build volumetric housing. Um, you know, I'm coming to you guys. How can you help me? And we're like, well, you need a site first. And they're like, oh, okay, how do we get one of those? Yeah. So we <laughs> yeah. identified this problem and we um, already knew a couple of guys that were doing this. So we, we've kind of teamed up um, with a, a sourcing company and they're now sort of working for us. So anything that they find, and they, they work in a number of ways. They um, Their background is, one of them was an air hunter. So he'd find the next of kin um, on unclaimed uh, inheritance. Um, so he's like a kind of detective, like a ninja. Um <laughs> who tracks people down and the other guy's background is more sort of doing the appraisals so he can make sure the site actually stacks before we offer it on to anybody else um and it's going reasonably well reasonably well i've offered you some stuff um and you know we've got we've we've had a lot of interest so it's uh the only thing that we want out of it is the architecture ultimately yeah exactly um but so it's a kind of business development tool uh it works well and yeah it's interesting yeah. And any areas in particular that you're looking at or that you're able to source? Well, kind of around us, we, so we, we do find quite a bit in Hackney. Um, but actually, you can find quite a lot of, you know, it's all quite random. We've got one in Northampton, one in Southampton. So Hackney's in the, the, the Hamptons, apparently. That's where we get them. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, it's all over. It's all over. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a lot going on around the whole Fish Island area of Hackney and there's there are quite a few big sites around there. So, mm. yeah, it's, I wouldn't it's want to be in there at the moment. No, there are supply issues around there, <laughs> yeah. such as oversupply. Oversupply. Yeah, <laughs> I was talking to a local agent there recently, actually, and, and he told me that the only things that are selling out at Fish Island are the help to buy. Yeah, yeah They're yeah. all selling, but anything else is not moving. 
So, yeah. yeah. Well, that is an example of a place that's been killed by development. Now, you know, I, I used to party in Hackneywick, I'm sure. Yeah, I've been to raves there as well. Yeah. And <laughs> Probably at the same ones. Exactly. And, <laughs> Actually, John uh, used to live in a warehouse there, did, didn't he? He did, yeah. He was the host of most yeah. of those parties. Um, <laughs> and that spirit has been crushed by bad yeah. planning. And I think one of the things I think is that all planners should be given virtual reality headsets. Because mm. if somebody had looked at what was there before, which was a beautiful community of artists and... It living in a place that looked like Mad Max and and you look at it now and it's just a series of monotonously lumpy seven-storey buildings with no spirit no. and no balance of cultural activities versus residential. They've just, you know, it's a tabula rasa approach to planning, which I, I really don't like. And, and that's why in our kind of like pitch to people, we say we like working, you know, we like taking buildings that are run down and, and, and making them inspiring again. And that goes for areas as well. So, you know, Fish Island is... The approach there should have been to work with the people that were there and work with the buildings that were there. Sure, you need to make money. Everybody needs to, you know, it's, you've got to redevelop. I understand that. And it's a, but it's about regeneration rather than elimination and, you know, replacement, which is effectively what's what's happened there. And the so fact it, there's nothing selling proves that this approach, the tabula rasa approach to, to redevelopment doesn't work. Because if you were one of the two large house builders in there at the moment, each with a thousand units coming forward in the next 12 months. Who's that? That's H Group? There and who else? We can name them because it's yeah. all public. Um, uh, Peabody, Peabody and, a, and okay. H uh, yeah. are both trying to, I think, get out. And and I just think it's a lesson in, in you know, sensitive development will end up, end up uh, giving you better returns than insensitive development. So just to kind of rephrase a little bit of what you've said there, what, what would have been better is rather than selling off sites piece by piece and getting planning site by site a better way of doing this by the planners because let's face it there were a few people who owned pretty much the whole of fish island mm -hmm. originally so a better way would have been more of an approach that walthamstow council have i yes. believe where yeah. you say okay this is an area we want to be developed let's look at how we would like that we'd like a tower here we'd like a seven story here we'd like a three story there we'd like some sort of uh leisure space here and that would have been a much better way to look at it as a whole rather than now this site by site approach that's happened and yeah well i think there's there's, there's a couple of elements and i think because the the planning authority on fish island is actually a sort of private entity so it's LLDC, LLDC. Yeah. um and I, I just think that they're you know i think developers love working with them because they basically said anything under this line we're going to say yes to um and that just made everything the same height. And, you know, I just think cities are made in complex ways over over long periods of time. And, and to replace everything within the space of a, of a few years based on a master plan that was kind of drawn top down without looking much at what was already there. And it was an incredible place. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure that it's necessarily that it's been done piece by piece. Yeah, yes, the master planning should have been better to start with, but it should have appreciated what what, what that place already was. Rather yes. than trying to replace it, it should have worked with the fabric and with the people that were there, with the artists that made it a rich and an incredible place. And, and you know, they were part of what was putting Hackney on the map mm. at the time. And for them just to be, you know, kicked out and sent to Tottenham or wherever they are next is, you know, it's a, it's a bit depressing. It I is. Think. And I noticed even that the bagel factory is closed down. Is it? Yeah, because um, local agent's now selling it. It's, called, it's still called the bagel factory. Right. But I used to love going over there and to crate for a pizza and beer. Yeah. 
and smelling the bagels being cooked there. Yeah, yeah. And that was incredible. And there's a lovely German uh, bakery and shop over there. And, yeah, my kids went to German school over there for a while. Oh, nice. So, yeah, it's a shame that it's all changing. It's just such a beautiful and vibrant area. There's nothing wrong with change, but I think it needs to be done sensitively. I agree with you, yeah. And that's and the beauty of those buildings and the graffiti mm. and it, it is... It's it's sad that it's it's changing in in a way, and it's just going to look like any other area now. Yeah, exactly. It's going to look like Stratford. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which it is neighbouring to. So, um, yeah, look, you're also really interested in the in future trends, and you've mentioned the off-site construction and. What about modular and things like that? Are these things that you at Ackroyd Lowry are getting involved with? Yes. So um, my background, I've done loads of offsite. Um, so timber frame is my favourite personally, uh, which is the most simple, um, which is basically timber studs, frames, uh, pre-insulated with um, kind of OSB, which is like a sort of chipboard on both sides, made into panels with all the windows cut out and put on the back of a lorry flat pack. And it sort of turns up looking like IKEA furniture. Erected with a very small crane because it's not very heavy, um, and then you put the cladding and the in, uh, and the lining on, and, and I, I love that. And I've done hundreds of, uh, well, not hundreds, I suppose, but tens of buildings like that. Um, I've also done cross laminated, which yeah. is similar but a bit heavier and a bit clunkier, and I, I like it, but it works better on larger residential um, projects where you've got the same floor plate on every floor. Mm-hmm. Like um, the one on Dalston Lane, I think it was. Yes. Um, yeah, someone's done one there yeah. recently. I went for a tour through that. Yeah, I can't pronounce the name. Carson and Kajuri Architects or something. They've got a complicated surname. Yeah, I know the architect. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's that's one example. But with the CLT construction, is it it needs to be up to nine storeys, is that right? And it works best around nine storeys, or is it over nine storeys? No, I think you can go taller, but I think mm-hmm. it's probably on economies of scale. I think it's probably a, okay, you're starting to get there at, at around kind of seven and above. Um and it is, it's cool. I like it because it's a st- sustainable material. And it's, as an architect, it's dead easy because like, it just stacks up and it's like so obvious how it works. That it's it's not, not particularly complicated. Um, but more recently, we've been getting into modular or like um, what we describe it as is volumetric. Um, so modular is a bit of a generic term. Um, it kind of encompasses a few different things. So the timber panel system I described before is sometimes called modular. Um, what we mean by volumetric is that it's basically like kind of containers, if you like, almost, except that you would leave one of the sides of the containers open um, so you can stack them together. So that's not a very good description because it's actually already got the windows in, it's got the cladding already on. So um, and it can have the kitchens pre-fitted, it can have all of the wiring in, all of the plug sockets in. So we, we recently delivered a nine-unit scheme um, in Woking, um, and it was made in 21 pieces in a factory in Hull. And they were, e- each unit effectively was two two pieces. So nine units, 20, 21 pieces. There was a bit for the circulation. Um, so you kind of get these these like half flats in this factory and it's mad to see them. Uh, and then they, it was um, taken down the motorway, down the A1, M1, um, on the back of 21 different lorries. Um, and it was then assembled in three days on site. So three days the contra- for nine yeah. units. It wasn't finished at that point, but yeah. the contractor had. It took three months to make it in the factory. Yeah. And during that time, the contractor laid pad foundations at three meter on a three meter grid, and put the drainage in. And then this thing turned up, and it was actually a week because we had two windy days. But the crane just kept putting the pieces down, 
stacked it up and at the end of the third day of work we had the full building there um that's unbelievable. So then it took three months on site to skim the inside, connect all the pieces up because the you know the wiring needs to be connected piece to piece. All the services do, in fact. Um, and there was a bit of landscaping, and they had to do a bit of you know. There's always a bit of stuff you have to do on site, but to deliver um, nine units in in three months on site, it's you know it, that would usually take twelve months. So it was a, a fantastic process, and, and we were then. Because we were so impressed by that process, we've been really pushing the message that offsite is cool and volumetric doesn't have to mean porter cabins, you know, because this thing doesn't look, you know, that's, I can send you some photos. I'd love to see put them up, But um, it doesn't look like, you know, it just looks like a building. It was it was clad in brick slips. So all we had to do on site was just do the mortar joints on, on the bits that were connecting. Um, and you'd never know that it was it was built in a factory. Um so we then wrote a white paper about that because we were so kind of excited about the, the process. And we've had quite a lot of inquiries um, of people wanting to use it, particularly for rooftop extensions, where I think yes. it's quite a cool Yeah, that's a great technology. idea. But with these things, I find, yes, it's three months on site, three mm -hmm. months to make, so there's six months. But yep. how much time goes into the actual planning before that? In order, So once you've got the planning permission and then you're drawing up those construction drawings, that's a long time. Because everything's got to be right before you even start the construction in the factory. So that must be, what, a three, six-month period? No, I think that three months included the design time. Because they, they, we did, they took the off-site manufacturer, we sent them a 3D model, a Revit model of what we wanted it to look like. And then they were able to, they then took design liability for the structure and the services. So they actually are the single point of design. They did all of the construction details and we just checked them. So in that three-month process, that included like the first month of it was them bashing out a load of CAD stuff for us to check. Uh, and then the next two months were steel frame and stuff. I and mean, it might have, maybe it was four months, but, you know, it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't Still, significantly yeah. longer. That's right. That's, that is incredible. And I, it is the future of, of building and construction. And for us, however, is our, our cost of construction is really low. And we do things a very traditional way. But yeah. It means that we can do it at low cost. And so for us to go back and re-systemise how we do things in order to adopt a modular uh, strategy is, is quite challenging. So, But I can see that that is the way that we're going. And it's the way that you can quite cheaply and efficiently erect new buildings. Definitely. And it will the price will come down. At the moment, the price per square metre is um, probably more than you would typically built for but um but you've got you know your borrowing costs are half because you're only borrowed for half the time isn't is an example of how you can say you know use it to in a whole co project cost it um it, it can it, you know there are, there are savings but they're not done on a square meter basis um and the other thing is that it's sort of because it's a single point of delivery um there's a lot less management so if you're a developer looking to scale it's really great and you haven't got a massive team it's a really good technology because or it's a good, good procurement route because you can have one guy that's looking after five sites, you know, rather than one guy per site because the project management of it is is significantly less. So you can kind of turn projects around faster and get a bit of kind of more momentum. So I think, and also the, the cost is coming down because more people are going to do it. I mean, there, there are factories opening up all yeah. the time, the government's supporting it. So it will, it will, you will start to see it more and more. Do you think that there's an argument for sourcing that sort of modular construction offshore as well? Because I know that there's some people who talk about Lithuania and other places doing modular and then having it shipped over, or do you just feel there's not the economies of scale there? 
Um, I wouldn't be worried about that. I'd be much more worried about warranties. Um, yeah. So at the moment, there's not not every development finance company are comfortable with modular or volumetric. Sorry, um, some of them are. There's a few in the market. There's enough in the market so that you can get development finance. And when you come to sell the units, not every mortgage company is is also in the game. So at the moment, by next year, I think probably most of them will be. But at the moment, it's not the full list. And <clears throat> certainly, nobody's going to lend money to something that's not got an NHBC or equivalent uh, structural warranty. And when you're looking at these Lithuanian companies, for them to really understand the intricacies of NHBC, I think you're adding a layer of complexity to a project that you just don't really want to deal with. So for the moment, I'd look at the UK if you're resi. Um, I think it's different. Um, I spoke to a guy from Vastant who uh, are, they develop hotels. It's actually um, IKEA's money. Um, It's kind of IKEA development arm. And they're doing quite a lot of stuff in Stratford. And they use, uh, they've got their own in-house volumetric supplier based in Italy so the new Moxie in Stratford um, was actually built in Italy and shipped uh, with all of the you know the sort of second fix electrics in and and they actually kind of they went for a combination of cross laminated and then panelized systems and bathroom pods it's really amazing yeah those bathroom pods they look incredible don't they they're really cool Um, and they are hotel the hotel industry seems to be ahead of um, housing and yeah, they were early adopters to all of it, yeah. the CLT and all of that, yeah. And the reason is pure economics. They, you know, the quicker they can open, the quicker they get a revenue. Whereas, you know, if you're to look at um, Fish Island as an example, if you build all of your houses as quickly as possible at the same time and you flood a market and you're a house builder, you kind of hit your own value. So <laughs> there's less incentive to build fast in the in the housing industry than there is in the hotel sector. And that's why hotels are ahead. And they do use offshore. But they've been going, they've been doing it a bit a bit longer yeah and it's it's an interesting point you just touched on there about the big house builders how they're not incentivized to do things quickly they're incentivized they they need to hold back supply which is uh, there were many discussions about that a couple of weeks ago uh or back in april about that and about how the the laws need to change to incentivize house builders to release more and to meet the supply rather than holding back but you can understand why they do I can. And I think it's an opportunity for people that aren't part of those top six, because there's only six real companies that are doing this. And the rest of you guys, you should be out there building as fast as you can, catching yeah. up, you know, making yeah, up the Yeah, well, difference. we would if the planners would let us. Well, that's, <laughs> but a, sort of different that's thing, another whole, yeah, yeah, that's another whole, whole uh, <laughs> problem with the, the time it takes to get through planning, yeah. despite the... Uh, the statutory timeframes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, how do you how do you get on with planning? Do you work with various planning consultants or one in particular? Or no, yeah, we tend to pick one depending on the project in the borough. So, um, yeah, we've got a, a whole stable of people that we work with. We've got our favourites, um, but I think it's it's important to try and get ones that know the planners as much as that is possible. And it is quite difficult these in these days. You don't have such cosy relationships with planners because they sort of move around quite a lot. But um, I think I'm probably the only person that's on the planner's side. I think they give them more money and a bit more resource and they, they do a decent job. They let through 75% of applications. They generally want to protect people's environment. They kind of want to make cities that are okay. I think um, I think planners do a really good job. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> the Look, they, let's face it, they don't earn much and it must be difficult to sit there seeing developers profiteering off the work that they're doing. But I just, I would love there to be more of a collaborative approach than, yes. a, than an us versus them and this attitude where they're 
seemingly blocking every move rather than saying, okay, this is how we could work with you. This is what we'd be happy to do rather than, no, we're not doing it. Yeah. It just would be, it'd be nice to have that spirit of collaboration. And I think some boroughs do. And I mean, I think there are some boroughs that really don't as well. And uh, I don't know, probably shouldn't call out individual boroughs, but there's one in particular in South London where once you've submitted an application, that's it, you can't change it. And so even mm, if there's one yeah. small matter, you have to wait eight weeks and get your refusal. And you only get the refusal on the last day and they don't yes. comment on it at all. And then the f- all you do is change that one thing and resubmit it. And then that plan has got to do the same work again. And you're just like, guys, if you're under-resourced, what is going to save you time to, yeah. to let me tweak this application to make it work for you instead of me resubmitting it and you having to deal with it again in another exactly. two months? And that's just mad. I think it's Yeah, and Hackney for their faults, they will let you do that. Yes, They'll they let say, you we're going stuff. to refuse this unless you change this. Yeah. You've got 24 hours to get it over to you. <laughs> yeah, 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 or at least four <laughs> hours. <laughs> four hours, yeah. And then you're scrambling, working through the night or yep. <laughs> to get it done. Yeah, we've had that on a Friday yep. evening. Right, have this to us by Monday morning and it'll be approved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cancel all weekend plans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, it's um, yeah, it's it's a battle that's not going to go away anytime soon, unfortunately. But what's what's happening in the future for Ackroyd Lowry and for you as well? Um, well, what's happening in the future? We've got pretty aggressive sort of growth plans. So, um, we're, well, our office is full now, so we've just got up to a 12th person, which is good, but we've only got 12 seats in our office. So probably next year looking at moving office. Our plan is that we want to try and do a sort of deal where we can get a lease on something that's got development potential and JV with the owner. So we've actually got some, got a site in mind for that, which is very exciting. So hopefully moving into like some old MOT garage for two years and perfect make, making everyone work out of that and yeah. then doing joint venturing with the owner uh doing the planning for free and then and then splitting the uplift with them um so that's kind of cool and what we want then is to put that equity into basically retaining the ground floor for instance so that we can then have our own office that we've got out of the deal um great model which yeah would be, which would be good um other than that we are just really pushing the innovation stuff so we want to get all the new the new headsets that are coming from the US, we want to have multi, well, actually, we've already got multi-user VR experience so that we can walk around with our clients because at the moment they kind of just get lost. Whereas yes. now you, you could, we've got sort of new technology, which means that we can go in first and we can do this little follow me button. And so the client just kind of has to follow you as you walk through it and you can navigate it a bit better than them and you can show them the bits that you want them to see. Yeah, because that's true. I had a go at some uh, VR when I was in MIPAM, actually, and I interviewed a company that do it, and I actually found it really difficult to navigate because yeah, I don't game. I'm not a yeah. gamer. My 8- and 10-year-old would have been able to They'd get around yeah. without a problem, but I was going, oh, how do these control works? So, yes, I think that, that that's would be it. great. And then people end up on a balcony, like, you know, <laughs> Jumping off a balcony. Yeah, exactly. and then on the roof, like, come back. <laughs> do not jump. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that's quite cool uh, with the new setup is that we've got one of our clients is in New York, and we're designing, um, he's just bought a really nice house and we're putting in a, um, it's not actually our t- typical type of work, but we're putting in an amazing kind of basement spa and uh, real luxury um, sort of for a high net worth individual. Um, so we want to be able to communicate with him effectively. So he, we're going to share a model between us and New York and he's got the headset over there. We've got the headset here and we can meet him in the swimming pool of the new Oh my goodness, that's incredible. In kind of in virtual space. It's yeah. like, yeah, it, is, it does feel like the future. Yeah. 
Oh, that's exciting. Thank you so much, Oli, for joining me. It's been really insightful to hear about the VR especially. I think that's that's really fascinating and really sets you as a firm, as a practice apart from everyone else. So thank you very much for your time today, Oli. Thank you so much for having me on. I forgot to say that at the start, I should have said. But, you yeah, know, it's been a real pleasure and it's always great to see you. So, yeah, yeah. thank you again. Great, thank Cheers. you.